Hey friends, thanks for joining me, Jim Baroud, to hear a few insights from leaders who represent our innovation ecosystem. Today's chat is with Jaron Parikh, the co-founder and CEO of Ghost Robotics, and Brendan Englott, Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Stevens Institute of Technology. Brendan, let's start with you. Give us a, a, give us a background on who you are and what you do. Sure. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Brendan Englott. I'm an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Stevens Institute of Technology, a private research university located in Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, I've been at Stevens for seven and a half years and uh, started a lab there that we call the Robust Field Autonomy Lab. Um, and that the, the name of our lab kind of captures what we hope to do uh, with our research in robotics, which is achieve robust autonomy. So autonomy and robotics capabilities that work in tough conditions. Um, some of the um, conditions that we consider involve outdoors, in air, on the ground, underwater. Uh, that, that's a particular area that we focused on in past years um, where communication is challenging, sensing is challenging. And uh, one of the most important aspects is that situational awareness is very challenging. So a lot of our research focuses on how we give those robots improved situational awareness. And a lot of it uh, is, is achieved through design at the system level, at the algorithm level, and also by incorporating AI and machine learning into our solutions. Um, and that work uh, that we do is kind of inspired by some of the work I've done in my past as well. Before coming to Stevens, I was a research scientist at United Technologies Research Center, uh, which has now uh, recently become Raytheon Technologies Research Center uh, in uh, East Hartford, Connecticut, where I had the opportunity to work on unmanned aircraft, which was very exciting uh, for a couple of years. And prior to that, I did my doctoral studies at MIT, and I got to work on um, a really fascinating project where we were producing and testing a robot that could perform a fully autonomous ship hull inspection to inspect Navy and Coast Guard vessels for mines, um, kind of intended to do the job that, that Navy divers are often tasked with doing. So uh, that whole progression through working on some exciting field robotics projects that had to operate in tough conditions has informed a lot of the work we're doing at Stevens. Great, thanks for that. So uh, Jaron, go ahead, talk to us about you and your background and what you do now. That's great, uh, thanks Jim, uh, and uh, pleasure to meet you, Brendan. Uh, Jaron Parikh, I'm the uh, CEO of Ghost Robotics. Uh, Co-founded it with uh, two uh, PhD uh, candidates at that time in late 2015, Gavin uh, Kennelly and Amit Day, who were doing their uh, PhD work on uh, on actuators uh, for complex electromechanical systems, quadrupeds, uh, ultra agile robotic arms, and so forth. So they had uh, come up with a brand new concept uh, for building a quadruped or any other type of legged robot. Uh, using different technology, different IP versus some of the leaders in the market like Austin Dynamics. And uh, it was the three of us uh, at uh, my so-called basement. Uh, that was late 2015. We're at about 30, 31 people now. Uh, we're hiring as fast as we can. Obviously, uh, uh, hiring uh, is a little bit more challenging right now. Uh, we are focused on government markets. About 90% of our business is with US and allied government customers. We have about 25 uh, uh, active uh, projects going on worldwide uh, today, about 50% are in the US, the other 50% are with our allied customers, uh, and another 10% of our business is with large enterprises. So the enterprise business is coming for legged robots. Uh, we'll talk certainly about the applications and use cases here, uh, but we're, 
we're, we're, we're, we have a feeling like three years ago, we entered the uh, DOD, Homeland Security and Intel space. We have that same feeling today entering the enterprise space. So we think there's some uh, great growth opportunities there. And our partners include folks like Verizon, uh, AT&T, uh, Carlson Software, Ares Security. Uh, so larger mid-market enterprise companies that are, are building solutions for inspection or security. Um, a little bit by myself prior to this, I, I ran a, a company in Princeton, New Jersey, where I got to meet uh, 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 James and uh, uh, many other folks from uh, NJTC at that point in time. Uh, Snap One uh, was a company I was restructuring and were able to grow that company from, you know, take it down to five people and all the way up to 120. And then eventually we had um, an exit on that business to Synchronos. Uh, my prior experience, I've spent most of my life in uh, sales, product management, marketing functions, um, most of it in international markets, uh, many growth stage and uh, startup companies. And so uh, it's been a terrific journey, but this is my first time working with hardware. Uh, and uh, it's, it's extremely challenging, probably the most challenging uh, opportunity I've had to, to work on in my Got career. It. Thanks, thanks for that, Jaron. So, so let's get right into it. Um, a lot going on in the robotics space. A lot of it has been affected by the pandemic and, and accelerated. But I really want to hear from you folks. What is the state of the industry now, and, and where has it come? Right, you've both been in the in this sector for a few years uh, at least, and so you've seen the the, the changes and the growth. So. Uh, Brendan, let's start from a macro perspective, from your perspective, someone who's uh, at, at a university. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, although, you know, perhaps admittedly, the role of robotics technology in addressing the COVID-19 pandemic may have been a little underwhelming in terms of our preparedness to have solutions to immediately roll out to address it. I would say the state of the industry as a whole is, you know, very exciting, very promising, and there's tons of continuing growth across many, many different sectors of robotics. I think one of the most exciting things happening now is the fact that there are so many consumer robotics technologies that are becoming available that are being widely used so that everyone is becoming more familiar with robotics, not just specific users in industry or in government or in health and medicine. Um, so that, that aspect of it is very exciting to me. And, um, you know, mo motivates a lot of the solutions that we're developing that we're now, you know, we know that some of the algorithms we're developing aren't just going to be used by, you know, specially trained end users, but we need to make robotics accessible and understandable to everyone. So. Got it. And how has it changed, uh, you know, drastically nationally or globally? Are there certain dynamics that you're seeing that we should know about? Well, I guess that that aspect of the growth of consumer uh, robotics that are available to consumers is the part that's the most exciting, considering I got involved in the field, you know, maybe 15 years ago when much of these, you know, the ideas that you're seeing come to fruition today in autonomous vehicles, autopilots for self-driving cars, unmanned aircraft, uh, you know, consumer robotics that are, are that can work in your home. Uh, many of those were kind of blue sky ideas, you know, and uh, where everyone was waiting to see what would happen if, you know, if the field was going to grow to the point that there would be an explosion in, uh, you know, consumer, consumer use of robotics technology. So I guess seeing it cross that barrier has been very exciting from my standpoint. And, you know, it's one of the, the most uh, interesting new, new trends as, you know, within maybe the past five to 10 years that have occurred within robotics. Got it. Uh, Jaron? Yeah, I, mean, I think I think timing is everything, right? Uh, you know, legged robots, for example, got uh, uh, 
Amick and Gavin did their PhD work under Daniel Kodashek, and he developed the first quadruped, independently battery-operated quadruped, uh, Boston Dynamics' first robot called the Rex. Uh, it's a little shoebox-sized robot. <laughs> it's quite interesting. 15 years later, uh, to see our quadruped, you know, uh, you know, for example, this Vision 60, we'll see a video of it uh, in a moment, you know, to do, you know, eight miles on a single charge, on a battery charge, have a lightweight robot that can move fast, right? Two and a half to three meters a second, completely durable, waterproof. From that day, you know, you know, 15 years later, it's amazing to see this, this, this product. But you can imagine the amount of money that's gone into kind of building the core research, you know, companies like Antibiotics, Boston Dynamics, Agility Robotics, each one has their own strategy, you know, and actuation and design of these platforms how they're controlled from the enterprise, you know, software component, what sensors they're using. Uh, but that journey from, from an idea to actual fruition and commercial use, uh, you know, long time, right? Uh, the cycles here are, are le- a little bit less than I would say uh, battery technology, right? Or uh, 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 endurance technology. What the challenge we see now is, uh, is who's going to buy these robots and what are they going to pay? And so with the timing, you've got, you know, the cost and application development issues. So applications with legged robots, I think most people's sense was they're good for videos. Um, and that's really about it. You know, I mean, you can see a lot of these companies have great videos of robots that walk and do terrific, um, um, you know, be, have terrific behaviors uh, in front of a camera, but in a controlled environment. When you get in an uncontrolled environment, that's where the fun begins. And so that was one of our strategies when I met Gavin and Avik was, hey, listen, do you really want to compete against, at that time, it was Google that owned Boston Dynamics. Says, do you really want to compete with these guys? Because they can outlast you, you know, 10 times over. And I don't really see any applications for these robots. But it was pretty clear that the military had some fundamental constraints in the field with casualties and loss of life that could be mitigated with these robots. So we, we thought, the best thing to do was to start marketing these into those government markets first, like a lot of technology, right? Aerospace technology, uh, electronics, the internet, you name it, right? Go into the military DOD space. There's a lot of money to fund those mistakes. uh, So you can get rid of that timing calculation, get to a use case. And now, as I mentioned earlier, now we have a robust product that's in the field. It's ready, or we call TRL-9. Uh, Brendan probably knows that uh, all too well. Getting from eight to nine is like a pain in the butt. And so now you have this TRL non-product. What can you do in the enterprise? The second challenge I talked about was the cost variable. That's still a challenge, right? And we need to work on that higher volumes, uh, you know, uh, lower cost computational system sensing platforms. So I think that's coming. And then, you know, the holy grail, right? Can you have a legged robot walking around in your home, you know, as your mobile IoT uh, security and you know family watchdog uh, that's coming but it's probably another decade away is my guess you know can we get those price points down and we may not be the winners there it might be some Asian countries that are very good at those low cost platforms but at the highly engineered side of it um, you know for defense or or mission critical industrial enterprises like I think the US and Western markets have a have an opportunity to kind of own that space. Got it. So, um, what about globally, uh, Jaron? How are you seeing things? Are 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 other countries sort of a, uh, 
head of the pack or yeah. he's fit? Yeah, I, I would say so. You know, Southeast Asia is, you know, fundamentally just generally talking enterprise government applications. Uh, we see a lot of uptake uh, in Southeast Asian markets, uh, some North Asian uh, opportunities. Uh, Europe, I think many of these countries and markets are, are more used to automation of tasks. Uh, they either lack uh, capable resources to do something or the expense of it. Uh, I don't think that's not the case here in the U.S. Uh, I just think hopping on this automation bandwagon may be a little bit slower. Now, if you separate the military market, the government market, a lot of allies uh, are a lot more fast moving. Why? Simply because the countries are physically smaller. The budgets are smaller. They're a lot easier to wield and manage uh, versus a U.S. Department of Defense budget. It's really large, right? So a lot of stakeholders, uh, a lot of politics that are involved, and uh, you have to compete for money against some very, very big contractors and old ways of doing things. So in the military market, we will actually see adoption in other allied uh, 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 countries uh, accelerate uh, maybe 12 to 24 months ahead of the U.S. Oh, wow. And what would some of those countries be? Just curious. Singapore is a great one, right? Um, you know, Australia, my, my experience with Australia, for example, or some of the European countries is the check comes faster, right? It's super easy. There's a lot less paperwork, bureaucracy involved. And again, I think that's just physically the size of the country, how they're run. Uh, they may be, you know, uh, countries or markets that have newer bureaucracies, right? A lot less, um, uh, you know, a lot less paperwork involved. You know, the U.S. government, is a big, big customer, right? And there's so many segments and sub-segments and uh, it can be challenging dealing with, uh, by the way, somebody may want to buy your robot, even if they have the cash, is there a contract vehicle uh, to give you the money? You know, we have to deal with unique challenges. A lot of foreign markets, you know, we'll just get a wire transfer. Thank you very much, you know, from directly from the Department of Defense or their embassy, please ship us the robots, right? And they'll prepay it. So it's, it's quite an interesting dichotomy there. That is interesting. Now, what about speaking of money and funding, the infrastructure bill, uh, the additional monies that will be coming uh, from the federal government, is that affecting you? And is that affecting you, Brendan, uh, you know, as far as research? Well, it's exciting to see uh, new legislation that prioritizes infrastructure. I'd say one of the most exciting roles that robotics can play in that is helping in the inspection and maintenance, uh, potentially in repair of infrastructure as well. Um, putting robotics in, in technology in hard to reach places. Uh, and I, I think a lot about this underwater in particular, where it is really hard to put eyes underwater uh, at the, you know, looking at the infrastructure that needs the most attention. So uh, in, you know, in burgeoning efforts like the development of more offshore wind infrastructure, repair of existing infrastructure, um, I think robotics can play a huge role in that. And perhaps this new legislation is going to be a driver of more, uh, more robotics technology to help solve problems in that area. Right. What about you, Jaron? How are you saying, you, obviously the federal, the defense budgets are pretty, uh, pretty full, uh, pretty robust. Are you seeing any additional possibilities through other areas of the government? Yeah, but by the way, I would make that comment. A lot of money in that pot, but also a lot of people with their hands out. Um, and a lot of smart players, like big defense contractors that are really good at it, right? Um, with lobbying efforts and so forth. So small companies, 
you know, if we're very fortunate, right? We have a legged robot. So everybody wants one, which is great in our, our, our numbers and, and scaling. In fact, as I've talked to a couple of magazine editors, they, they believe by, we've shipped by far the most robots this year in legs versus any of the other competitors uh, in the market, including Boston Dynamics. So we are the number one in kind of government and allied markets, but you have to fight for it. In terms of the infrastructure bill, we think there's opportunities uh, to potentially do more manufacturing in our home country. All of our electronics and components are, are US and allied made, uh, but if you can bring everything here, I think that infrastructure bill will help us potentially for manufacturing critical components here that and you'd be shocked, uh, even if they're in an allied market, uh, they're at risk, right? Uh, from a logistics and supply chain perspective. So we think that's gonna help there too. I think Brendan hit it, the nail on the head as an afterthought as they're spend, spending this money and building things, they're gonna need to inspect and manage it. Um, and, and maybe robotics has a, has a really strong play there. So that's certainly a potential opportunity. Well, let's talk about the manufacture of robots, right? We, we all hear about the supply chain issues. What percentage of your robots are built, you know, outside the U.S. or what components and, and what's the optimal situation we might want to be in, in in two or three years? Yes. So in our case, all of our, so the, our entire robot is custom, all the electronics, compute, bus board, I mean, we go as far, you know, motor controllers, even encoders, everything is custom. Um, first of all, we have to lock it down. It's got to be secure. Uh, another reason is legged robots aren't efficient. Typical legged robots, even uh, the marketing leader, Boston Dynamics, those things run 40 minutes. I've seen them in the field. That's about much as they run. For us to get our robot to run three and a half, four hours continuous walk time, um, we have to, it's highly engineered, right? The entire robot runs on a one watt microprocessor main bus board. Um, so all of that is under our control, the electronics package that are all made here. Custom cabling, wiring, everything. All the design is all here. What we do source from external markets are ICs, radios, sensors, but none of it is from a non-allied marketplace. It's all, all, all close allies, right? Europe, uh, uh, Europe, Israel, uh, Canada, uh, you know, the five eyes typically. Uh, metal, we will get cheapest wherever we can get. Funny enough, the DOD is, we, could, we don't want to pay extra money for the robot if you can get machined metal from Mexico. You know, I, I, I don't think they have a requirement to make that stuff here. So our challenge on the supply chain is really at the sub-component level, ICs and other bits and pieces that go on these electronics boards. But we're a little bit more like a Tesla versus a General Motors. If you saw their quarterly earnings, you know, uh, General Motors, there's a boatload of cars they didn't ship because they had supply chain issues. Tesla or SpaceX, on the other hand, if they can't find an IC, uh, for an electronics board, they'll just reprogram in a new one over two weeks, which is what we do. So we don't actually have a supply chain issue here. We will redesign in new components into our electronics, depending on what's available. And we can typically do that in a few weeks time. So our supply chain issues haven't been as problematic. And especially since we make everything ourselves outside of an NVIDIA application board uh, and some sensors from companies like Intel, Everything else has been pretty straightforward. Uh, that's good to hear. But is there an optimal, you know, in two or three years, would you like to be at a better 
place as far as uh, insourcing things more from the, is that even real, realistic? I think making it in the US makes it easier, right? And I think we recognized here after this pandemic uh, and, you know, some of the, uh, you know, kind of political constraints we've had right now with, uh, uh, with you know, kind of adversarial countries like China, right? Our, our, our frenemies. Um, it just makes sense, right? I think we're now on a new new path where at least over the next decade, I see everybody's going to be focusing on buying or trying to manage sourcing directly in their home country for a number of reasons, right? And so I think that's good for us. The challenge is our cost structure here uh, uh, will, will negatively impact on how these technologies scale um, if we're making them here. Now, if you've got a consumer product, you can make it in Asia, that's perfectly fine. But for a defense or a mission critical industrial enterprise, you know, that's, that's, that's tricky. Right. So, so what about the funding, um, you know, going forward, you've seen it Jaren, from an entrepreneurial perspective, I believe you're, you're venture backed. Um, and Brendan, you see funding in general, mostly from government. What, what your, how has funding sort of uh, changed over the years? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, there has been a lot of uh, investment and prioritization of robotics research on the government side. Uh, I would say it's a great time to be a researcher in this sector because of how many different opportunities there are. Uh, and one reason I think is because robotics technology is so cross-cutting, you know, is that every sector of the government focused on, on important issues understands that robotics is an important tool that will help them advance their goals. So, you know, uh, whether it's uh, the Department of Energy uh, that's interested in robotics technology for, uh, you know, inspecting energy infrastructure potentially, or NOAA, uh, you know, interested in robotics technology as a data gathering tool to support their science mission and to support better prediction and forecasting. Uh, or in my case, a project we recently had funded was actually from the USDA, uh, interested in robotics technology for agriculture. Um, it's, it's pretty much across the board. There's really a, an investment, an important strategic investment being made in robotics research. So um, things are, are very good from that side of things. Good, good. Jaron, what about from the private sector? Yeah, so I would, uh, I would uh, second uh, 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 Brendan on, on the government side, right? There's a lot of funding for robotics automation, DOD, Department of Energy. There's just all sorts of opportunities. Um, from the private sector, there's boatloads of cash going in um, into uh, venture-backed companies. Obviously, we had the larger bubble early on with companies like Rethink Robotics and all the little consumer, uh, you know, I don't know, Muppets that would sit on your desk and talk to you. And those are all dead, right? There's, there's already billions of dollars gone to waste. Uh, but now there's a new crop, right? Uh, and this happens, right, in every tech segment, right? You've got those early adopters, a lot of, a lot of crashes, a few wins. Now you're going to have a lot more wins. Uh, people are not focused on a robot, right? They're not focused on, hey, make me a new drone or a, maybe a ground platform. Give me a solution, right? That's what customers are buying solutions, right? That's what we should be developing. In our case, uh, we have lots of people that want to throw money at us. Uh, so raising money is not an issue. Uh, we haven't raised much here. Uh, we've, we've raised less than $8 million over the last uh, five years. We've just raised four and a half of that eight million over the summer, um, so we're, uh, we're we're in a good business. Our robots are expensive. Each one is like one hundred fifty thousand. 
and you got about maintenance and warranty contracts on it. Gross, gross profit margins are good. So we've been able to scale this business by, by selling these prototypes and getting to the stage where we are now for a commercial ready robot. So we feel fairly comfortable getting money, both uh, uh, equity capital, debt capital. Uh, but you can also sense that there's potentially a bubble building as well. You've seen a lot of SPACs, uh, companies like Sarcos, uh, now as part of a SPAC, I think the valuation is like 1.3, 1.4 billion. Don't quote me exactly on that. I think they have less revenue than we do, uh, which is surprising. Um, so, you know, we have some strategic options too, is how, how do we raise additional capital for, for, for business growth and operations and for our shareholders too. That's, that's great. That's great to hear, Jaron. Now, what about the, just, just if we can double click on that as far as, are your investors local or regional or are they from the West Coast? Uh, yeah, in our, in our case, we have our, our lead investors, uh, 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 tell the investment arm for a number of, U, of the U.S. Intel agencies. Oh. Uh, we also have a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, early stage, surprisingly enough, we're, st- we're generating substantial revenue now, uh, but we've not done more than our seed stage, right? We're not even to a series A yet. So we've got some tier one, you know, uh, seed stage investors as well. Um, we haven't even pulled the trigger on a series A yet. So uh, we're, we're surviving on, you know, through cash, through operations and growing the business. We may look for uh, additional funding next year. Um, hopefully the market will continue to be robust. Right. Uh, that, that's great to hear. And, and, and so where do you see your, your company, uh, you know, at revenues in five years or, or market value in five years? Is that, is that a fair question? I think revenue. So yeah, bulk of our business is government, right? Department of Defense, Homeland Security, Intel. Um, how that works is, you know, you prototype with them and you pilot with them and then they, what they have called program a record, right? And they can do program purchases. So we have two types of customers, customers that don't care about program purchases, uh, special operations teams worldwide. You know, we saw, we deal with the soft community and every one of our, in, in the U.S. and allied markets, they don't need a program or record to buy anything, whatever they need. So we're, we have robots that are being used in the field today and they'll continue to buy and that's going to grow. Probably in 24 months, you're going to hit some large programs or record and, you know, give you an example, uh, Endeavor Robotics had one program a record with the army. They'd split with Kinetic and they were bought for 375 million by FLIR. Uh, and they were spun out of iRobot for 30 million, I believe from Arlington Capital. So they went from 30 million, three years later, four years later, they sold it for 375 million program a record. We'll probably have a half a dozen programs a record in 36 months, U.S. and worldwide. Uh, uh, this business is highly scalable. It's potentially, you know, north of 100, 150 million in revenue in five years from now, uh, tied to these large-scale projects that we're working on today. That's fantastic to hear. That's really exciting. Um, so, what about you, Brendan? As far as um, what's next at Stevens? I know you you, you have a robust program anyway, uh, historically, but how do you see your program growing? Yeah, there have been some big um, investments and commitments made by the university to AI and robotics. And I think we see them both as being very 
critically intertwined. Uh, AI has been responsible for some of the biggest uh, exciting new achievements that we've seen in robotics. So we're trying to respond to that through, uh, you know, the way that we're steering our research activities, the way that we're steering our educational activities as well at Stevens. One exciting thing that rolled out very recently was that we now have a master of engineering in robotics degree. So you can now uh, earn a master's in robotics and be well prepared to go out and meet the needs of the, of the industry today. Um, and we also have uh, an AI Institute, uh, which, which includes robotics in its portfolio. And there's been a lot of um, new faculty who have been joining us doing a lot of very exciting research. These days, our research per portfolio at Stevens uh, spans not just my own area of autonomous vehicles, but we have faculty working in medical robotics, rehabilitative robotics, grasping and manipulation technologies, and we now even have our own um, uh, indoor drone flying space at Stevens that has been uh, built and completed within the last couple of years. So there's been a lot of uh, exciting stuff going on. Oh, that's great. I can't wait to see that drone space. So, so Jaren, you are, and, and Brendan, you're in, you're in Hoboken. Stevens is in Hoboken. Um, I assume you're there as well. Jaren, you're uh, Zooming from Philly. Is that right? Yeah, we're downtown Philadelphia. Uh, we're at uh, uh, our offices are at the Penovation Center in south uh, part of the city. Um, in a few months, we're actually moving to the Navy Yard as we expand here. Um, so yeah, uh, we're going to be keeping our primary operations in, in downtown Philadelphia. That's great. So so you collaborate with UPenn. Tell us about how uh, how Penn is uh, how their operations are as far as in, in robotics and. Um, can you can you speak to that? I don't know how how closely you you collaborate. Yeah, with we're. We're separate from Penn outside of, you know, uh, you know, hiring some folks from there. So we don't, we don't work with the University of Pennsylvania. We have, we have no, no tie to them. You know, Gavin and Avik were obviously doing their PhD work there. They completed it and Avik had a short stint to do at Harvard on a postdoc uh, after 2015. But it's really just been focused on Ghost. We just happen to have our offices here at the Penovation Center. But we don't, we don't work specifically with them or any other uh, university. Uh, we typically don't disclose most of the work that we've been doing since their post, you know, their their postdoc work. Right, but do they have a robust uh, program there at Penn? As well, well, I mean, BJ Kumar has done an incredible job, the dean of the engineering school. I mean, he's uh, he's obviously a superstar. He's done a lot of uh, you know early work on uh, small lightweight drones with DARPA. Uh, they have a great reputation. A lot of great companies have spun out of their exit technologies. Um, they've spun out of there doing incredible work with autonomous, uh, uh, uh aerial platforms. Uh, they have in fact seated, you know, some of our top leaders, right. Our, our engineering leaders and controls and behaviors and electronics and, uh, you know, mechanical are all, you know, from Penn. Uh, so they're, they're a great ground, you know, uh, opportunity to, to, to hire. Uh, but we're also working, you know, to hire folks from all the local universities here. And hiring is a challenge right now, right? There's some inflationary pressures. People may or may not want to uh, leave unless, you know, the packages are supreme. So even a legged robot can't get them to, uh, uh, to leave their existing jobs. So we're, uh, we're working through those challenges. And I'm sure Brendan's probably seen similar, uh, uh, similar types of behaviors from, uh, for, for other companies as well for hiring. Sure. Uh, and, and why don't we segue into that talent, you know, where, where are we, where are the opportunities and challenges, uh, are there enough folks coming into college that have the, uh, the degrees 
and the expertise and the, and the focus. Brendan, why don't you take that? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's an exciting time to get involved in robotics, and there certainly is a lot of demand, uh, you know, from from students who want to um, tailor their education toward those opportunities. Um, a lot of students are, you know, reaching out about masters and doctoral programs in robotics opportunities to get involved in research. One of the challenges, I guess, recently that was largely brought on by the by the COVID nineteen pandemic and our uh, you know, our reactions to it was cutting off a lot of the great international talents that so very much wants to, you know, uh, get their higher education in the United States, become part of the U.S. technology workforce. Many of them were unable to apply or, or come to American university programs. Some have stuck it out and did a year or two online and are now starting to um, get visas again. But um, there, there has definitely been a shift. And I think some of uh, some of the countries that used to be, um, you know, huge um, constituents in that in that area, uh, many, many talented students who wanted to come from Asia to, to pursue higher education in the U.S. Some of them have begun to look elsewhere because of the challenges of getting here, getting a visa to come be a student here. So um, with that, however, there is, of course, many, many opportunities and uh you know, many uh, domestic students are aware of that and are, are pursuing higher education and trying to, um, you know, uh, address those opportunities and, and join the workforce and um, contribute to robotics. So uh, there have been some some pluses and minuses in that. end, But we do have a lot of healthy uh, interest from domestic students as well. And, um, you know, definitely our, our programs and research in robotics is growing because of that. Uh, that's good to hear. What about you, Jaron? Obviously, you mentioned currently getting um, experienced folks is, is a challenge, but are you seeing a, a bigger pipeline uh, going forward? Yeah, so we have a lot of applicants. Uh, we get applicants daily. I think the challenge is finding those that are qualified for this type of uh, highly engineered integrated um, platform. Um, so now we're, you know, now we're in the commercial ready products. These things are, you know, have to have substantial mean time before failure hours and capabilities and durability and all these environments. They don't exist, right? None of this stuff exists. So there's R mixed with the D. Um, and that's a challenge finding those level of people, uh, enough of them here in the Philadelphia metro area. So there's a huge number of students that are coming up and we're, we're hiring certainly, you know, finding application developers, not an issue. Uh, finding, you know, highly qualified folks for this type of highly engineered product. They're also typically at companies like Raytheon, uh, Northrop Grumman, other companies that make highly engineered aerospace and defense tech. And so we also have to compensate at that range now, right? And so that, that creates a challenge. And of course, you got to work with your investors. You got to raise more money. Um, you got to modify your compensation and, um, you know, programs to do it. You got to do it, right? It's, it's as simple as that. Um, so I think there's a little bit of pain for smaller companies. Uh, but over the long term, uh, it's no different than any other era or decade, right, for tech. You saw this boom, you know, at the dot-com period, um, salaries, you know, were, were a bit crazy at that time, I, I, I recall. After the financial crisis, right, it was another boom. And so I think you're just going to see it. And it really depends on what segment you're in. Robotics and automation and, and AI, autonomy is really uh, compelling. Um, also, a lot of companies that are hiring there, right? If you want to hire a perception engineer, the top guys are at, you know, they're at Google or they're at other automotive companies and you got to bring them to Philadelphia. 
and so you know we've got to we've got to work at those challenges. And by the way, Brendan, if you've got if you've got talent up at Stevens, we're hiring as fast as we can. So send them over. And speaking of that, you just Jaron, everyone's talking about work from home. Is that uh, possible at a company like yours, or are you you know everyone's in the in the office in the lab? Yeah, it's that's challenging for us, right? So we got our what uh, shut you know closed down shop order what March twenty twenty right uh, from. Governor Wolf, you know, 24 hours later that, you know, the next day we, we filed for petition for an exemption. So we've had a national security exemption. And so we've been in the office since shutdown. Um, a little bit unnerving, um, but it's really critical, right? What we're doing physically with robots. And we spent a lot of money, right? Putting in 0.1 micron HEPA filters throughout every room in, in our facility, uh, Early on, we had ordered over just under 10,000 masks and 95, can 95 masks in, in uh, February, March, and April. Um, I'm from India originally, and so bad things happen with disease. So, you know, it's a, it's, it was a no-brainer connection for me. So we just took those precautions, and we just tried to operate in a highly controlled environment. Um, and we had no choice but to do it, and, and, and thank God. Uh, we didn't have a COVID outbreak until just last month, even with folks vaccinated in our assembly and repair shop uh, with with three people. Uh, but, you know, we've taken precautions and we also have a mandate, right? Nobody could work here without a vaccine. And, um, and that's been important, too. Right, right. Well, you know, for those of folks who, who don't know what it looks like, your, your robots, your dogs, why don't you pull that up and show them? I, I, I love seeing them in action. And I yeah, everyone else will as well. Yeah, so just and I'll skip through this video. It's six minutes long, but that robot you, there comes apart in fifteen minutes, and that's really a work of art, of and engineering for something that's got a lot of complex wiring and uh, actuated systems in there. This is our robot uh, uh, showing our core IP, where we're using the motors as sensors. So typical legged robots use proprioceptive sensing four sensors in the legs or at the output of the motors, we don't use any of that. Uh, we use a very highly transparent BLDC motor and we can feel the environment there at 2000 instructions per second, any force on the robot. So the robot not only looks good on video, but when you put it in the field, it operates through swamps, uh, just absolutely uh, mind boggling terrain. And so that's what's very unique about our robot against the Boston Dynamics, which looks good on video but constantly fails in the field. And we see this time and time again, because they rely on proprioceptive visual sensing and you know force sensing through the legs, where in our case, our robot is like life. You push it like a dog. If it's a dog's next to you, it's going to push back and stay stable. And so maybe I'll, I'll bring up some uh, quick videos. So the robot here, for example, doesn't know uh, that there's a stairwell there. And I'm going to try to bring that up for you real quick right here. So the robot doesn't even know that the stairs are there. It just happens to be climbing it completely blind. And it's really, really impressive technology. It's taken years to perfect. We are using sensors today to make it elegant, walk around a car, walk upstairs elegantly. But if it fails, it always goes back to its blind mode capability to stay stable, which is fundamentally why they're using a legged robot, right? You're using a legged robot 
to operate over all sorts of crazy unstructured terrain. And the robot should get from point A to point B to do its mission. And the operator shouldn't have to worry about what the substrate, what the angle of ascent is. If it's walking through, you know, uh, an old riverbed here, it shouldn't care. And so it's, it's really fun and exciting to build these things. And you can see them with different payloads here, chem biological sensing payloads. Uh, you know, this, this robot has sensors there that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars on top of our robot for special forces. Here's a small robot that we built that we'll commercialize here shortly uh, for different applications. And so we're gonna be building a whole, whole portfolio of different shapes and sizes of, of quadrupeds um, this is a very compelling video in really loose substrate. And the robot doesn't know anything about its environment. It's just getting a velocity command to go straight. And it's going to do whatever it needs to do to get to its objective. It's really just amazing. And you can see these as very valuable for, uh, for combat operations, security operations, uh, all sorts of different use cases uh, across inspection and security for enterprises as well. That is amazing. And you used to have one that used to climb fences. I think I yeah. that one. Yeah, if you, if you go to our about page, that was the first robots Gavin and Avik built through the Minotaur robot. And, you know, we used to sell that robot for nine grand, right, all day long to universities and customers like Google and NVIDIA used to buy them to do research and stuff. Five years later, this is what we built, this amazingly portfolio of durable mission ready robots for, you know, for war fighters and other, you know, operators in the field that, uh, that need the protection or need the capabilities of something like this. That is fascinating. Really. Congratulations, Jaron. That is amazing. And now who is your, so you mentioned Boston Dynamics, they get all the love or the publicity. Are they your main competitor in, in, in general? And is there a foreign competitor that, that we should know about? Yeah, that's really it, right? We're the only U.S.-legged robot manufacturer left that's U.S. owned, right? So, uh, and Boston Dynamics is owned by Hyundai now. They went to SoftBank at Hyundai. They have a nice product. Uh, we don't think it compares to ours. Uh, we've seen it in the field. Uh, now, I don't think there's anybody else out there that makes anything close to what we built. Yeah, that's amazing. And we, you know, we own north of the, we own north of ninety percent of U.S. and allied government market purchases which is the largest market today. Wow, that is amazing. That really is. So you can, you can uh, move this off the screen. So when my kids ask for a dog, I always say, I'm going to get you a robot dog. How far away uh, am I um, from that, uh, delivering on that promise, which obviously deflates their excitement? Well, I mean, Christmas is right, Christmas is right around the corner. And if you have a lot of money, I can get you a robot uh, by Christmas. Uh, <laughs> you can get to them now. My guess is they're probably a decade away, right? Uh, so, you know, you've seen some Chinese models, these smaller robots next, uh, very similar to our Spirit 40 robot. You know, they're selling them for like 10 grand. They'll be cheaper. Now, again, you get what you pay for, right? These robots work for a certain amount of time before they overheat. And, you know, they're not made for, you know, throwing down stairways or off, you know, our robots are made to parachute up planes and that type of stuff. So you're going to get what you pay for, but you can see that progression. Is it unreasonable that you're going to be able to buy a $2,000 or $3,000 robot a decade from now that 
your kids can have fun with, I think that's a, there's a, probably a good chance that it will happen. Okay. So likely, likely not from ghost, um, but there might be some high volume kind of consumer uh, 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 product manufacturing company that'll come up with something. Got it. That's been a remarkable trend across a lot of different sectors of robotics. Um, in my domain, you used to need on the order of $50,000 to buy an underwater robot that you could do anything meaningful with. And now driven a lot largely by hobbyists too, who really want to get their hands on this technology and, and, and tinker with it. We can buy something for a, a few thousand dollars, um, what, you know, one-tenth the price of what it would have cost maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, this, and by the way, sensors too, right? Some of these sensors used to cost like 100, 150 grand. Now you can buy them for $5,000. Why? You know, companies like FLIR, have done a great job scaling the technology, scaling it down, taking the cost out of it. The volumes have gone up. Everybody's using a sensor right now. Everybody's using the word sensor. My God, I never used that before. I used to call it a camera. Uh, <laughs> now everybody's using the fancy word sensor, but you can buy these FLIR sensors at Home Depot, right? You put them on your phone to do a thermal reading on your pipes. It's really amazing how that has evolved. Now imagine cars have dozens and dozens of sensors, millimeter wave, sonar, uh, radar, thermal, LIDAR. The prices are going to just drop, you know, it, in, enormously on a year over year basis. Right. This is, this is really, this is really fascinating stuff. Um, before we get, there's a couple of questions before, before we get to them, what's one thing we should know about the future of robotics? Brendan? So uh, relevant to what we were just discussing, you know, I think it's very tempting to think that robotics are subject only to Moore's law, you know, that there is going to be this amazing explosive doubling of their power that we can fit into the same size package uh, year upon year upon year, but they're subject to Newton's laws as well. And so I think similar to what we've seen with the development of automotive and aircraft technologies, uh, the, the physical capabilities that you're seeing in that video are really challenging to achieve. You know, they, they've taken a lot of uh, time and effort to develop and their physical capabilities are probably going to continue to evolve slowly, even if their sensing and computing capabilities have been exploding. Yeah, I mean, well said, Brendan. I, I mean, that, that is a challenge, right? For us, for example, you want that robot to go 100 miles. I mean, we can't do it. We have to rely on endurance technology, right? Fuel cells, uh, you know, battery uh, technology that moves at a completely different cycle, right? That's years, years over years before there's there's substantial changes. That's a challenge for us. Motors, motors are not made to go back and forth, right? In this case, we have to have a a motor that spins in a circle, right? That allows it to cool itself, right? Basic physics. And so having larger motors, building larger robots to carry heavier payloads uh, in terms of legs doesn't scale from a physics perspective. That motor technology doesn't exist. Sensors can't read data fast enough, have this running through the wild to use perception. We could barely get a car to work on a, on a road, which is kind of a controlled environment. Talk about that robot while it's climbing up, you know, unstructured terrain in a mountainous region. Some really challenging physics issues here that, uh, you know, as, as Brendan noted, we're just going to have to wait to get resolved. Got it. Robotics can be used for good or evil. Can you talk about the ethics around robotics? Brendan, you want to take that first? 
Sure. Yeah, I know that's a it's a very important point. And I think it's something we need to be aware of as researchers and practitioners and, uh, you know, producers of this technology um, that like many tools, you know, uh, similarly to a, how you could use a hammer to build a house or to tear one down, you know, um, we need to do our part to frame the conversation around responsible, ethical uses of the technology. Um, and, you know, I think to a large degree, our community has, um, has succeeded in doing that. Uh, the government that has, you know, sponsored key applications where we really have a compelling need for the technology has succeeded in doing that. I guess the, the message I would convey about that is I think one of the most important and, and uh, you know, ethical uses of the technology that has succeeded to date is its use for these so-called dull, dirty, and dangerous tasks that take people out of harm's way. And I think that's one of the most compelling applications for robotics. And, um, you know, we, we need to continue to be aware of that uh, in, in framing the public conversation and promoting the use of robotics for good. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a question of science, you know, it's science and human values, right? Where's that, where's that intersection or where do you stop and start? What's more important, right? Uh, take, for example, what we do. Uh, we support our, our government customers, our warfighters, special operations team members, counterterrorism. You know, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're working with, you know, teams that are handling weapons and mass destruction issues, right? Some serious stuff. And in all of these cases, they can use any payload they want, sensors, radios, uh, non-lethal, even weapon systems, right? That's what the government, that's what the De Department of Defense does. Uh, that's what we do. We build a robot that the warfighter can put any payload, including sniper packages, uh, target designators, cameras, right? So take example, we released some uh, um, sniper packages at, a, at the big Army AUSA show in October. And there was a bit of an uproar. The vast majority of feedback was very positive, right? And a lot of people that, that are in the business, they walk by the booth and said, ah, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the Seaburn thing. It's just a matter of fact. Now, people got crazy because we had a legged robot with a sniper kit that's used by special operations team members that are in very stressful situations. And in my, my advice to people that thought that was offensive, I said, hey, listen, I don't have a problem. You don't want that robot taking that, that, that hit on an enemy combatant that could do some great damage to our national security. Then send your son and daughter to take a place of that robot. Uh, that's my message to them. Uh, <clears throat> if you take a look at the US government and our allies, they're ultra, ultra conservative about using any type of weapon system on a robot. Why? That's the rules of engagement. And the U.S. is just ultra cautious. Everything is man in the middle, man controlled. It really is a remote walking tripod. Now, I think 20 years from now, and I think Brendan's point was, we have to be cognizant of everything today. Otherwise, things can run amok. And that's where researchers come in. Uh, that's where companies, the private, even the government comes in and puts the rules of engagement down. So we have to have these really strong rules of engagement about autonomous and AI systems on, on weapons. Uh, and it's not just us, right? Everything is going autonomous, tanks, planes, you name it. So, you know, Ghost is really a tiny piece of it, but we're all cognizant of it. We have to be careful about who we sell these robots to. Uh, we have to put in fail safes. Uh, it's, it's amazing. 
by the time you even see a weapon on a, even a legged robot like ours, it'll be years away. Um, and you, you'll never see it because it'll really be special teams or special forces that are using it. Now, we should not have our head in the sand. If you take a look at China, Turkey, uh, even Pakistan and some of these other countries, we should be very concerned, right? Because they're using inexpensive drones that they're buying in retail, strapping them with explosives or other ordnance, uh, kinetic applications. And, you know, we have to be ready, right? And I think that's a lesson on all technologies that are dual use. No, that, that's a great way to end. Uh, this has been really fascinating. And, and you know, we're going to have to do one of these a year from now and, you know, just keep updating us on, on so the changes because um, uh, the work both you, you were doing is really important. And, um, you know, just thinking about how many lives, you, you know, your robots have saved, Jaren. I mean, that's, that's, that's impressive. Even basic things like seaburn sensing, EOD, right, bomb techs. Our robots are a lot better than a wielder track device, which is the state of the art today and being replaced by legs. It's, I mean, it's a huge impact for the good. Uh, I think just like everything, as Brendan noted, you know, we just have to be cognizant of it and, and, and have more human value discussions as part of any, any, any uh, you know, technology that we're, we're introducing at the market. Exactly. Well, on that note, I want to thank both of you, Brendan. Thank you. Thank you, Jaron. And, um, Keep up the good work. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please like it, leave a review, and subscribe. See you soon.